Would you turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 5? Hebrews chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 693. Our text this morning is found in Hebrews chapter 6, but we are going to begin reading in chapter 5, verse 11. And so if you have found your place in your copy of God's Word, if you'll stand with me as we honor the reading. Hebrews chapter 5 beginning in verse 11 and going through chapter 6, verse 8. May God's people hear his word this morning. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity." not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Father, have your way amongst us this morning, and may your word accomplish all of the purposes for which you send it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year, Google releases their Year in Search report. And this report, it shows the most searched for terms in their search engine. In the year 2021, topics like Afghanistan, COVID vaccines, Alex Baldwin, and Squid Game all came in top of the list. The report also lists top questions that were typed into uh, the Google search engine. Questions like how to pronounce Dogecoin, how to be eligible for a stimulus check, and how to be more attractive. Uh, These all were top of the list. 
But outside of their end of the year report, I also ran across a list of the top 10 most asked questions on Google by average monthly search volume. And in 2021, here are the top 10 questions that people Googled. What to watch? Well, if everyone's in quarantine, I suppose they need something to do. Where's my refund? How you like that? Apparently that was a song. What is my IP address? How many ounces in a cup? What time is it? How I met your mother? How to screenshot on a Mac? Where am I? I guess we were all asking that in 2021. How to lose weight fast? Pastors receive a lot of frequently asked questions also, and in the almost 20 years in which I've either pastored or taught in a church, the question I've received more than any others is some variation of, how can I know I'm really saved? I've, I've heard it in every single church that I've pastored or, or that I've been in a teaching role. How can I know that I'm really saved? Now, this is obviously a very important question. Um, and seeing as Paul instructs the Corinthians to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith, and Peter writes that we are to diligently confirm our calling and election, it's not only an important question, it's a biblical question to ask. It's a question that we all need to ask, and it's a question that we all need to answer. But almost every time that the question gets asked, today's text gets brought up. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. How can I know I'm really saved? What about Hebrews chapter 6? This is the third warning passage of the book. You may remember as we've been going along the book of Hebrews that the book, the letter, is structured around these five warning passages. And we've seen two already. We've looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And we looked at chapter 3, verses 7 through chapter 4, verse 13. It was the lengthy one uh, that revolved around Psalm 95, which we sang this morning. But when we come to chapter 6, verse 4 through 8, and this third warning passage, we come to some of the most difficult verses in the entire Bible. Not just some of the most difficult verses in the book of Hebrews, some of the most difficult verses in the entire Bible. And they haunt people who struggle with doubts and insecurities over their salvation. How can I know that I'm really saved in light of these verses? What if I have already sinned in the way that these verses describe? Am I guilty of an unforgivable sin? Am I hopelessly lost? These are common questions. Common questions. Maybe questions that you've even asked yourself. Maybe not out loud, maybe not sitting in a pastor's study, but maybe in your heart you've asked, how can I really know I'm saved? Have I... Have I done something like described here in Hebrews chapter 6? Now, why do these verses plague people so? Why is it that, that these verses, they, they follow people and, and they trouble people? I think it's because the verses are actually really clear. I think the verses are, are really clear. I think the reason so many people struggle with this text 
is because they understand what it's saying. And I, I, I think that they, they come to the text, they read it, they see what it's saying, but it's, it's saying hard things, and so they don't know what to do with it. It seems to be saying this, but I don't know what to, what to do. I don't know how to respond in light of what it says. They, they seem to, to clash with and, and even contradict other verses in the New Testament. I think this is why some commentaries and, and some preachers, they feel the need to try and make the passage say something other than what it clearly says. So I'm going to lay all my cards on the table up front. I'm not going to make you guys wonder, what is George's interpretation of this passage? I'm going to lay it out up front so that you can leave if you want to before we really get into it. I'm going to tell you how I interpret this warning. Here it is. Strive for maturity because a shallow, immature, and careless faith is a faith that is always in danger of falling away. And if you deliberately apostatize, it will be impossible to restore you again to repentance. Let me give you that one more time, because for many of you, you may have never heard that interpretation. Strive for maturity, because a shallow, immature, and careless faith is a faith that is always in danger of falling away. And if you deliberately apostatize, it will be impossible to restore you again to repentance. Now that interpretation may make you uncomfortable. Good. I want it to make you uncomfortable. It probably also raises a lot of questions. That's also good. We ought to study this passage and to ask our questions rather than to immediately try to reinterpret the passage, to lessen what it says. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to ask some questions. We're going to ask some questions, and we're going to answer them as we walk through the passage. And I'm, I'm hoping as we ask and answer these questions that they shed some light on this difficult text so that, that you will walk away saying, I, I still struggle with it. It's still hard, but I understand what it's saying. And... As you understand what it says, I want you to obey the warning. I want you to obey it. I don't want you to say, this is for someone else. I want you to obey this warning. So, here's the outline this morning. Very simple. First, we're going to look at the passage and we're going to answer five probing questions about this text. Five probing questions. And then, as after we've gone through the text and answered these five questions, I'm going to give seven conclusions, I think, that we can make about this text from those answers. So, five probing questions and then seven conclusions. Pretty simple, right? No one's left yet, so that's encouraging. All right, let's, let's look at the text and let's ask these five questions. And let's see what the text says, not what George says, not what you, you've been raised to believe, but what does the text say? Let's look. The first question, who is he addressing? Who, who is this warning directed to? Because if it's not directed to you, then you can just tune out the rest of it. Let's see. This is a fairly simple question to answer, I think, because the author of Hebrews gives five descriptions. Let's look. 
we see it right in the text, beginning in verse 4. It's impossible in the case of, here's the list. Those who have once been enlightened. Those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. And the powers of the age to come. Ask yourself, who does this sound like? Who does this sound like? I think the answer is really clear, and that's why people have such a hard time with this passage. There have been attempts to try and identify these people as false believers who invariably will be in every church, even ours, people who have made outward professions of faith but who have never experienced genuine conversion, yet simply by their inclusion in the congregation can be described in these terms. I think this misses the point, though. I think if you're honest with this description, if you're honest as you look at these five things, you are going to come to the conclusion he is talking about Christians. He's describing Christians. Let's look at these five descriptions. Those who have once been enlightened. This word enlightened, it comes from the same word that's translated as light. Those who have seen the light. Who's seen the light? Well, it's used one other time in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. You can flip over really quickly and you can see it. He says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Remember when you were once enlightened, Who's been enlightened? I think it's clearly referring to Christians. And he says this is a one-time event. Those who have once, once for all time, been enlightened. It's a one-time, unrepeatable action. Once you were in darkness, now you are in light. This fits with the description of Christians across the New Testament. Those who have been enlightened. They are also the ones who have tasted the heavenly gift. There's question on what the heavenly gift is. He may still have in mind the wilderness generation from chapters 3 and 4. It, it, it's very obvious that the warning passages kind of connect with each other. And so he could still be talking about these, the wilderness generation of chapters 3 and 4. If so, he could be thinking of the manna that came down from heaven. Those who tasted the heavenly gift. Well, of course, that manna in the Old Testament was pointing forward to the true heavenly bread, the Lord Jesus, who came down from heaven, whom every believer must eat or be in union with, per John chapter 6. And he could be talking about this, those who have tasted of Christ, those who have experienced Christ. In any case, to taste the heavenly gift seems to be another way of speaking about salvation, You've been enlightened. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You've also shared in the Holy Spirit. If there is one undeniable proof in the New Testament that someone is a believer, what is it? It's possessing the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul even says in Romans chapter 8 verse 9 that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Because the Spirit is the seal and guarantee or down payment of our inheritance. Those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, 
are those who have been brought into union with Christ and he has given them the Holy Spirit as a down payment of their salvation, of their inheritance. These are also people who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. It's hard to imagine that, that he's simply saying you've heard the scriptures or that you have head knowledge to taste of something. He's already used that language of those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God are not those who simply have heard it or, or, or understood it, but those that have received it and believed it. That They have taken the word of God and they have believed it and trusted in it because they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And then tasted pulls double duty here. Those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and those who have tasted the powers of the age to come. Throughout the New Testament, this word powers uh, carries the meaning of miracles. It's translated that way in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. They've, they've tasted the miracles of the age to come. Or, even more common, it's referring to the power of God unto conversion. They have actually tasted the power of the age to come in their new birth. It's, if you were in Sunday school this morning, it's this inbreaking of the age to come in the here and now. They now are experiencing the age to come in the present. They have tasted it. They, they have experienced it. It's part of their, their lives. And so taken together, these five descriptions all piling on each other, it's hard to imagine a much better description for a Christian than this. What would you add? What, what would you take away? How can this be referring to anyone other than Christians? And, and while it's, it's certainly true that every church, even the healthiest church, may still have unbelievers in our midst, the, the point of this passage is that he's describing Christians. He's assuming it. When he's pointing this, this warning at them, he's not saying, well, you guys act like Christians, but you're not actually Christians, so this warning's to you. He's saying, you are those who have been enlightened, who, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God, who have tasted the powers of the age to come. He's assuming that they're Christians. And perhaps the strongest argument for this being the case is that he doesn't call for their conversion. He calls for them to go on in maturity. He's not saying you are, are, are described in this way and you, you're, you're falling away, so, so you need to be converted. He says, no, no, you need to go on into maturity. You're babies. You need to grow up. So I, I think the answer to the first question, to whom is he addressing this warning? I think the answer has to be he's addressing Christians. He's addressing genuine Christians, not just Christians in name. He is talking to born-again believers in Christ. So, second question. What is he warning against them doing? What, what's the warning? What, what is he warning them against doing? Again, this is a fairly straightforward answer. Look again at the text. He says in verse 6, and then have fallen away, then have fallen away. That's the answer, literally to fall aside. 
They're walking on the path and they fall over the edge. Uh, the word is only used here in the New Testament, uh, but it's used once in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 4, where it's translated as transgressed. Those who have transgressed. But we don't need to supply just any sin here. Uh, early church father Tertullian, he said that, that this falling away was committing adultery or fornication. We don't, have to, we don't have to guess what exactly the sin is because within the context of the warning passages and within the context of the book, we have the answer. This is not just some average sin. This is not some random sin that you committed on your way to church this morning. There is a, a specific sin that the author is dealing with here. It carries the same ideas as in the previous warning passages. Look over at the first warning passage, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The second warning passage, chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. Different word than what's used in chapter 6, but same connotation, to fall away from the living God. Calvin, commenting on this passage, he says that the author is referring to a total defection or falling away from the gospel. When a sinner offends, not God in some one thing, but entirely renounces his grace. This is not just any sin. We don't, we don't fill in the blank with whatever sin we're dealing with and say, this, this must be the sin. I'm falling away. I, I'm lost. Because that's what so many people do when they're sitting in the pastor study and they're saying, how can I know I'm, I'm really saved because I've done this? Is this Hebrews chapter 6? We have the answer. The answer is falling away is complete abandonment of the gospel. It's completely leaving. Don't leave the Christian faith, he's saying, to return to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Remember what's going on in this book. You can't just rip out this warning passage and make it say whatever you, you're, you're worried about. You have to remember this book is about believers who because of their, their, their trials and their persecution and their tribulation, they're being tempted to leave the church and go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. They're, they're being tempted to go back to the, to the, the Old Testament priest and the, the temple. And he's saying, don't fall away. That's the sin that he's talking about. Don't come to confess Jesus as the Messiah, the, the one sacrifice for your sins, the one who has died and, and been raised. Don't profess that it's salvation in Christ alone through faith alone, apart from works, and then leave, fall away, deconstruct, apostatize, drift away, whatever word you want to throw in there. Don't do it. Now we'll look at this more in a few minutes, but for now let's see that the answer to the second question, what is he warning them against doing, has to be he's warning them against renouncing the faith. Christian, don't renounce the faith. That's the warning. That's, that's what he's saying. It's very clearly in the text. 
Third question. What is he warning will be the consequence? What is he warning will be the consequence? So, so far we've seen that he's addressing Christians and that he's warning them against falling away or renouncing the faith or deconstructing or apostatizing or whatever you want to call it. This next question is where it gets a little more difficult. What is the consequence of falling away? It's broken up by the description that we have, the five descriptions, but we can see it beginning in verse four. It is impossible, and then we skip over to verse six. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. There it is. Put it together. It is impossible to restore these people who have fallen away to repentance. Now, this is hard. This is a hard passage. It is suggested by some commentators and preachers that what is being discussed here is a loss of rewards. If a believer sins in this way, he'll still be saved, but he'll lose his rewards in heaven. That's a really difficult interpretation to support from the context. For one, it would necessitate that the falling away is something other than deliberate renunciation of the faith. But it also doesn't make sense of the words to restore them again to repentance. The impossibility to restore or renew someone to repentance seems a far more serious consequence than simply losing your rewards but still achieving heaven. So what does it mean? It seems that the simplest meaning is this. If a believer renounces the faith, it will be impossible for that one to repent. This is a serious warning. If you're sitting there and you're hearing this interpretation and you're saying, that sounds really hard. That sounds very serious. Exactly. Exactly. He's not dancing around the danger. He, he's, not, he's not acting like what these, these Christians are being tempted to do. It is, it's just something mild. He's saying, if you do this, Christian, if you fall away, if you leave and go back to the Old Testament way of doing things, it will be impossible to bring you back. Rather than immediately attempting to lessen the weight of this warning or try to explain it away in a way that, that doesn't match the context or the meaning of the words, we ought to meditate upon the horror of what is being said in these verses. You ought to read these verses and instead of saying, well, this, this isn't about me, this is about someone else, this is about losing rewards, I'm safe, I've got my get out of hell free card, everything's okay. Instead, we need to look at this warning very clearly. We need to stare it in the face and we need to say, this is horrible. This is terrible. To have once been enlightened, to have tasted of salvation in Christ, to have shared in the Holy Spirit, to have tasted the goodness of the word of God, to taste the, the powers of the age to come, and then to fall away would result in the terrible consequence of never, ever being restored to repentance. 
Fourth question. Why is the consequence irreversible? Why is the consequence irreversible? If that's the consequence that, that they will be, it, it will be impossible to restore them to repentance again. Why is it the case? Why would it be irreversible? He gives the reason in verse 6. He says it, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since or because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, there's some possible meanings that have been suggested to this verse. The first thing is that it's not impossible for God to do this. He, he's not saying that this is an impossibility with God, but rather it's an impossibility on the human side. One suggested meaning is that it's impossible for the author or for the pastor to bring them to repentance. In other words, they've done all they can. They can't do any more. It would be impossible for them to do any more to bring you back to repentance. Another interpretation is that he's speaking in the hypothetical. If this kind of thing could happen, then it would be impossible. But they but you got to sneak in something there. you gotta, you got to kind of circumvent what's going on. You have to say, if this kind of thing could happen, then it would be impossible. But, as we all know, this could never actually happen. Another interpretation is that it's impossible so long as they're living this way. So as, lo as long as you're renouncing the faith, it's impossible for you to be restored to repentance. But if you stop, it will be possible again. But I think this is kind of like saying, if they repent, they'll be restored to repentance. And I feel like it's just kind of this endless circle. I think the best way to understand it is that it's impossible because the person has no desire to repent. There's also this reminder that repentance is not solely a work of man. We saw this last week in verse 3. We'll do this. We'll, we'll go on into maturity if God permits. And there's this subtle warning. Don't take God's grace for granted. Don't think that, well, if I, if I live this way, if I live in immaturity, if I live not, not caring so much about going deeper into the things of God, well, one day I'll be able to do it. The author is saying, not so fast. This kind of... of Action, this kind of change, this kind of repentance, this is the prerogative of a sovereign God. And so he's saying that if, if you deliberately walk away, don't think that sometime down the road, don't think that on your deathbed, that suddenly you can do this supernatural work on your own. Don't be surprised when, when you seek after repentance that you find that the doors have been closed, that God has hardened your heart, that God has hardened himself against you. When one deliberately walks away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance because they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a serious charge. We, we, don't, we don't want to read this, this reason 
as kind of a mild sin. Do you understand what he's saying here? It's impossible to restore them to repentance because they're crucifying Jesus again. To have once been enlightened to remember the once for all time sacrifice of Christ on the cross and then to renounce the faith to return to animal sacrifices or, or to some other basis for forgiveness of sins is to leave the only sacrifice. It, it's, it is to say that the cross of Christ is worthless. It didn't accomplish atonement. To, to once ha have been enlightened to this and to have embraced it and to said Christ alone and then to deliberately walk away is to essentially say that, that Jesus wasn't the Messiah and yeah, maybe he did deserve to die. He claimed to be the, the Christ. He claimed to be the Savior. But by your desertion, you're saying that's not true. And you are crucifying him again. You are holding him up to public contempt. Why is it impossible for those who have fallen away to repent? It's because they put themselves in the shoes of Judas. They put themselves in the, the, the shoes of Judas who spent three years with Jesus. He heard his teaching. He he had seen the miracles. He'd been privy to the most private, intimate discussions. He, he'd even been sent out to preach the gospel and to perform miracles, and yet he betrayed him. He'd been with Jesus and knew who Jesus was, and then he deliberately walked away. And if you fit the descriptions of verses 4 through 5, and then you deliberately renounce Christ, you're putting yourself in the position of those who crucified Christ. And no matter where you go, no matter where you look, if you leave the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, you will never find forgiveness anywhere else. Question number five. Question number five. Having answered these, these four questions, to whom is he addressing? What's he, he warning them against? What's the consequences? And why are these consequences irreversible? Let's ask one more to tie it back into its place in the letter. Because again, you can't, you can't take this warning passage out and deal with it apart from the letter as a whole. We, we can't just rip it out of context and then keep ourselves up at night asking if we've done this. So let's ask, what does this warning have to do with chapter 5, verse 11 through 6-3? That's, that's why we read it along with the warning at the very beginning, because we want to see its context. Last week, we looked at, at chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 3, and we saw how the author was shaming these believers for having this shallow, immature faith. He, he said, you're stuck on the ABCs. You're like babies who can only drink milk. You're untrained to discern good from evil. 
They keep relaying the same foundation over and over and over again. They're never building or growing into maturity. But the biggest scandal wasn't that they were immature per se, but that the reason for them being that way was their laziness and their sluggishness, their dull of hearing. They'd been Christians long enough that they should be teachers, but instead they were children, and they were children by choice. They were children by choice. Don't, don't miss that. This is not, he's not chastising new believers for being immature. He's, he's, not, he's not chastising those who became believers and, and were never truly taught the, the, to go further. He's talking about people who have been in the church, they have been under solid instruction, and because of their laziness, they just essentially throw up their hands and say, I don't have time for this. I have no desire for this. It would be like a parent who can't teach their child to walk because he doesn't walk himself. He's so lazy that he still goes around in that army crawl. Not because he doesn't have the legs, not because he doesn't have the strength, because he doesn't have the desire. Sorry, kids, mom can't cook dinner because the only food she knows and likes is milk. So here's your bottle. Mom can't teach you to read because she never saw the benefit of learning her alphabet. And if a Christian is content with shallow, immature, I don't need any of that doctrine because doctrine only divides faith, then when persecution comes... When the government comes in and says, if you can't affirm full LGBTQIA++++ inclusion, then you can't work. You're guilty of hate crimes. When it's renounce Jesus or die, then that kind of shallow, immature faith is going to fold up and collapse and renounce his faith without much of a fight. On Friday's podcast, Jay and I um, watched reluctantly, I guess, video clips of Church of the Rock in Winnipeg, Canada, put on Easter shows using the Avengers, Back to the Future, Pirates of the Caribbean, Lion King, and Toy Story to try and draw a crowd. They even put Jack Sparrow in the place of Jesus, and they crucified him on a boat. A faith that is content with seeing something like that, with seeing Jack Sparrow crucified as a representation of Jesus, is a faith that will fall away under pressure. Remember the passage that Jay read for us out of Luke chapter 8? That parable of the four soils. And notice those two in the middle. There's the seed that were sowed on, on, on shallow ground and the birds came and took it. And there's the seed that was sowed on good ground and it, it bore fruit. But notice those two in the middle. The ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, received it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing... They fall away. 
And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. We have the the ideas from the warning passage in the parable. Falling away, not maturing. Sounds like the author of our passage may have even been familiar with this parable. Christians need to be warned of this danger and its consequences. I, I grew up in Southern Baptist churches, and there's, there's two big things that you don't mess with in Southern Baptist churches if you discount the, the food. Believer's baptism by immersion, and once saved, always saved. You don't mess with those. And so when you come to a passage like this, well, once saved, always saved. Christians, you need to take this warning seriously. You don't need to immediately read it and say, well, I'm, I, I once saved, always saved. I walked an aisle. I said a prayer. I got baptized. I joined a church. I filled out that card. The pastor even shook my hand. You need to take this, this warning seriously. You need to be warned of the danger and its consequences. And the author gives us two examples in verses 7 through 8 to illustrate this. Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Land that that drinks the rain. The land is professing Christians. There's good land or good soil Verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. There's bad soil. The, the land is professing Christians. They all hear the gospel. They're all enlightened. They taste of the heavenly gift. They share in the spirit. They taste the goodness of the word and the power of the age to come. And if they receive it, and it causes them to grow and to mature and to bear fruit, then they are blessed. But if they come to church and they hear the word and they're around other Christians, but they remain shallow, they're worldly, they have no desire for the things of God, they don't move past the basics, if there's no hunger, there's no affection, then they will be accursed. This matches, again, the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. This idea is it's parallel to what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, 
and burned. Five questions. Let's summarize. He's writing to Christians. He assumes as much. He describes them as Christians. I, I don't think that it's helpful for us to say, well, you know, they, they shared in the Holy Spirit, but only in a halfway way. I think he's talking to Christians. He's warning them not to fall away, not to renounce their faith. The consequences of renouncing the faith is that it will be impossible for them to be restored to repentance. It's impossible, not difficult, not rare, impossible to come back. It's impossible because repentance is a gift of God and the person who falls away finds that he has no desire or opportunity to come back. Listen to Calvin. John Calvin writes, in short, the apostle warns us that repentance is not at the will of man, but that it is given by God to those only who have not wholly fallen away from the faith. It is a warning very necessary to us, lest by often delaying until tomorrow, we should alienate ourselves more and more from God. The ungodly indeed deceive themselves by such sayings as this that it will be sufficient for them to repent of their wicked life at their last breath. But when they come to die, the dire torments of conscience which they suffer prove to them that the conversion of man is not an ordinary work. As then the Lord promises pardon to none but to those who repent of their iniquity, it is no wonder that they perish who either through despair or contempt rush on in their obstinacy into destruction." And this warning comes on the hills of 5.11 through 6.3 because it's precisely this immaturity and lack of desire in going deeper into the doctrines of Christ that will result in falling away. Okay, we've asked five questions of the text, but I imagine that you still have some lingering questions. So let me give seven conclusions that I think that we can draw from the text that will hopefully smooth out some of the remaining wrinkles in your understanding. Seven conclusions based on what we've seen in the text. First, this warning is written to Christians. Now, I've already argued for this in the description of verses four through five, but I want to highlight it again because our tendency is to try and make it about someone else. That's what we do we do it over and over again. We come to a hard passage. It seems to be directed right at us, and we say, I wish so-and-so was here. They really need to hear it. This is written for you. It's not written for someone else. Brothers and sisters, if you confess faith in Christ, this passage is relevant for you. Own it. Own this passage. The second conclusion this warning is real. It's not hypothetical. This warning is real. It's not hypothetical. It doesn't make sense for the, the, the writer to be saying, if this were to ever happen, the consequences would be, di would be dire. But as we all know, a Christian can never actually fall away, so don't worry about it. Once saved, always saved, right? It doesn't make sense for him to be... be pulling his punches, to be couching his terms in, in something other than what he actually says. 
That would be like Josiah playing on the side of I-44. He's happy as can be as he inches closer and closer to the road. And I say, if you go out in the road, you will be obliterated by a semi. But I know that can never happen, so we won't worry about it. These Christians are inching closer and closer to the road. They are being tempted to abandon Christ for Old Testament temple, priests, and sacrifices. He's not working in the realm of the hypothetical. He's issuing a real warning to real Christians who are about to be obliterated by a semi. This is a real warning. He's calling out to real people, this will really happen to you. F.F. Bruce, commenting on this, says, The warning of this passage was a real warning against a real danger, a danger which is still present so long as an evil heart of unbelief can result in deserting the living God. Third conclusion. This warning is against apostasy, not loss of rewards. Loss of rewards is probably the most common Baptist interpretation that could ever be invented. <laughs> Baptists can't lose their salvation. They can only lose their rewards. And then they, they treat it so casually. Well, you know, it's all right if I lose my rewards as long as I get to go to heaven. We're, we're so callous to this stuff. But again, it, it doesn't fit the context. And, and note verse 8 again. The, the land stands for the person. It's the land that is burned, not the fruit. The land is what's going to be burned, not the product of the land. It's not the fruit that's lost. It's the person. It's the land. Look at the words that are being used. This, this, this land that bears thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles are never good in the Bible. They are always bad. They are always associated with the curse of Genesis 3. It's worthless. Is that the description of a Christian? They're, they're worthless? No, th this is someone who's near to being cursed. This is a salvation matter. Don't, don't think that this is anything less than your very soul. But the fourth conclusion, these warnings are not descriptive. Let me, let, me, let me explain that, that these warnings, they're not descriptive. See, the, what's the burning question everyone has about this passage? It's, what if I have already done this? Notice, in 5.11 through 6.3, he's writing in the first person plural or in the second person. He's, he's writing, we you, and then in, in 6, 4 through 8, he switches to the third person. Those who have once been enlightened, those who have tasted of the heavenly gifts, who have shared of the, of the Spirit. And then in verse 9, he switches again to we and you. When we look at this warning passage, we need to understand he's not writing about something that's already happened. He's not writing about something that is in the past. He's, he is, that's, that defeats the whole purpose of a warning. 
He's not describing them. He's not saying, you have already done this. You are lost. It's impossible for you. He's not singling anybody out in particular. He's not describing something that has happened. He's warning against something that could happen. And if you're worried that you've done this, remember again what the sin is. This is not whatever sin you're struggling with. This, this is not fill in the blank time. This isn't let me pick the sin that I deal with the most and put this in here and worry about it. This is about deliberate, intentional walking away. You don't accidentally renounce Christ. You deliberately do it. Now, it may be a slow process of drifting as you neglect the word and neglect meeting together with the saints. You neglect confessing your sin. You neglect turning to Christ. You may slowly do it, but it's still deliberate. You're still deliberately not going to church. And the fact that anyone cares about this is indication that you haven't done it yet. I like what Calvin says again after he, he talks about the impossibility of, of restoring someone to repentance who's done this. He says, but when anyone rises up again after falling, we may hence conclude that he had not been guilty of defection, however grievously he may have sinned. If you come back, that is proof that you haven't done this. I find that to be a really encouraging thought. Fifth conclusion, these warnings are a means of grace to, to Christians. These warning passages, they're not out there to, to just cause you to, to always doubt and to always fear and to always stumble over them and to always try to, to argue away from them. They're meant for your good. These are God's grace to you. These are a gift Yes, they're directed at believers. Yes, they're real warnings. But yes, they're intended by God to keep you from falling away. They're intended to keep you from doing this. That's the very definition of a warning. I've given this quote from Spurgeon before, but I, I think it's beneficial to give it again. He says, God preserves his children from falling away but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is the terrors of the law, showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why, to tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. So God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold thou me up and I shall be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution, because, if he, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed. And he stands far away from that great gulf because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. That's what the warning is for. It, it's a warning sign that's given to you so that you'll read it and say, I don't want to go anywhere near that. I, I, don't, I don't want to get anywhere close to that. I fear that. 
I fear falling and being lost. And so I'll do everything that I can to, to not fall away. That leads us to the sixth conclusion. This warning does not contradict other passages of Scripture. This warning does not contradict other passages of Scripture. Christian, you are safe in the arms of Christ. You are safe in the arms of Christ. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. He will keep you to the end. There are too many passages we could reference that promise us that those who are in Christ have an eternal salvation. Because Christ has died for his bride, all those for whom Christ died are secure. He will not lose a single person for whom he shed his blood. But how does he keep us? Again, Spurgeon, he keeps us by means. He keeps us by these warning passages. So believe the warnings. Believe the warnings. Why does someone sit in my office and ask me how they can know that they're saved? It's because of sin. It's because of sin. They, they, they have some sin that they, they've committed and they're, they're, or they're struggling with and they feel like, I, I can't be forgiven. I can't come back. It, there's, there is a wall between me and God that can never be broken down. These warnings, they make people nervous. That's why they get brought up so much. Let them make you nervous. Let them make you nervous. Feel the terrible weight of the warnings. Feel the, the weight of, of, of the consequences of this. And then run to Christ. Then run to Christ. Run to Christ. Sin is terrible. But don't let sin and don't let these warnings keep you from Jesus. The, the people who ultimately fall away are not the people who are running after Jesus. They're not the ones who desire Jesus. They're not the ones who, who are, are, are wanting to, to experience the forgiveness that's found in Jesus. They're not running to Christ. The people who ultimately fall away are the people who are running the opposite direction from Christ. So you, Christian, if you're reading this warning and you feel the weight of it and the fear of it, run to Jesus. Don't, don't run the other direction. Run to Christ. These warnings are not a call for you to, to try to be more religious or try to keep yourself. They're a call for you to recognize your weakness and then to cling in desperation all the more to Christ. Trusting that if you could fall away, you would. So hold on to Jesus. And know that Jesus is going to hold on to you. There's power in the gospel. There's power in the gospel. We're, we're about to sing this great song, He Will Hold Me Fast. That's not a lie. We're not going to be singing something that, that contradicts this passage. Christ will hold you fast. But we not only proclaim it to be true, but we pray that the Spirit would cause it to be true. 
We don't just say he will hold me fast so I can just go live however I want. I, I don't have to be here. I don't have to ever crack my Bible open again. We say he will hold me fast. Spirit, hold me fast. Keep me from falling. I recognize my sin. I'm prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. I, I'm, I'm prone to leave the God I love. So what's the prayer at the end of that verse? Here's my heart, Lord. Take and keep it. Seal it for thy courts above. Yes, we have the promises that Christ has died to redeem a particular people, they will persevere to the end. The means by which we persevere is the warning passages. And praise God for this warning and for all the others that God uses to keep us from falling away. Because without a warning like Hebrews chapter 6, we would certainly fall away. The final conclusion this warning ought to spur us on to maturity. This warning ought to spur us on to maturity. You know that despite the high guardrails and all the many safety precautions that about four to five people die each year from going overboard off of cruise ships off the coast of Florida every single year. According to the Coast Guard, most of the cases occur at night and are either people deliberately jumping or getting drunk and falling off while horsing around. If you don't deliberately jump and you're not careless around the edge of a boat, guess what's not going to happen to you? You won't fall off. Deliberate or careless. What's the description of your Christian life? What's the description of your faith? God has given us a stern warning. But he's also given us everything that we need to stay safe. He's given us the guardrails. Don't climb over them. Don't step one foot over. Let's see how far I can go without falling. Remember the context is of this warning passage, of the passage from last week. The context is Christ's great high priesthood. These, these Christians, in their immaturity, are cutting themselves off from the very thing that they need to be kept safe. Christ. They're cutting themselves off from his sacrifice, from his intercession, because they, they say, I don't have time for this. I, I don't want to go any deeper. I don't want to learn more about his high priesthood. They're cutting themselves off. God has given them everything that they need, and he's given you everything that you need to persevere to the end. Will you heed the warning, or will you carelessly and recklessly continue in immaturity to your own destruction? All who are trusting in Christ will never finally fall away. We'll stumble, we'll fall. But by God's grace, we'll get up again. By God's grace, Christ will keep us. 
by, by the power of the Spirit, we will heed these warnings, we'll obey these warnings, we'll press on to maturity, we'll grow up into Christ. Obey the warning. So go back to the pressing question. How can I know that I'm really saved? Simple answer. Obey the warning. Obey the warning. Don't leave. Don't leave Christ. There is a Savior who's been crucified for sinners. His death, his blood is is the only atoning sacrifice for all of your sins. In his, his death and resurrection, he has canceled the debt of sin against you. He has, he has taken God's wrath that, that you deserved, and he's taken it upon himself. He lives, the, the power of sin has been broken in your life. In his priesthood, in his work as your great high priest, he ever lives to intercede for you. He helps you in your time of need. Don't leave. Don't leave. Run after Christ. Cling to Jesus. Obey these warnings. But maybe you've been a professing believer for a long time, but you realize that you're not truly repenting and trusting in Christ. Today, Today, turn, come back, repent, trust in Jesus. There's grace. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, you've, you've never publicly professed faith in Christ, then you're in even more danger than these warning passages. You've never even known Jesus. The foundation hasn't even been laid. But today, maybe the Spirit's convicting you. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Come and trust in Christ. Jesus has died as a substitute on the cross. He's risen. He now stands ready to save anyone who would come to him. That's what these warnings are for. These warnings, they're not meant to, they're not meant to cause you to, to always be wondering, to always be questioning, to always be searching, to always be doubting. They're meant to cause you to go to Jesus. So go to Jesus. This is God's grace to even the worst of sinners. He stands ready to receive all who will come to him. Christian, these are hard warnings. They are hard, hard warnings. But take comfort in Christ. Take comfort in Christ. Be encouraged. Jesus saves you. Trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we readily admit that in our weaknesses, in our sin, there are passages of scripture that are difficult. They're not only difficult to understand, they're difficult to apply. They're difficult to know what to do with. God, but we thank you that you've given us your word. And even though we've, we've 
come to this text and we've, we've wrestled with it. We've tried to see what it, it says. We've tried to see what it, what it means and what we're supposed to do with it. God, apart from your spirit, we are still hopeless and weak. So God, we ask that your spirit would strengthen us. Give us understanding mind. God, convict us where we have sin, unconfessed sin. Father, help us to obey this warning. Not in a self-sufficient kind of way, but in a way that causes us to flee to Jesus. To see Christ as our only hope. That it's his strength and not our own that keeps us. Spirit, help us to obey. And God, I pray that my brothers and sisters here, that they won't leave here discouraged, but they'll leave here challenged. They'll leave here trusting in Christ all the more. God, I pray for those here who recognize that they've been stuck in immaturity, that they've, they've been lazy, and that they're in danger. I pray that they won't leave here without repenting and, and turning again to Christ and pressing on to maturity. God, I pray for those here who have never trusted in Christ. Maybe even those who have heard the gospel time and time again, maybe they're here every week, but they've never trusted in Christ. God, we are again reminded that salvation belongs to you, that the new birth is supernatural. And God, we pray that your spirit would open blind eyes and cause dead, stony hearts to be alive. And we pray that Christ will be seen in all of his beauty, all of his power and his grace. And God, that you would save sinners even this morning. That God, again, have your way amongst us and let your word have its complete results in our lives but we ask that this church might be faithful to obey and that we might bear fruit in keeping with repentance that bring glory to your great name and we pray these things because of what christ has done and in his name amen